All right, everybody, I see it is 7 o'clock, so let's get started. Everyone's got so much to say tonight, isn't it? Busy times, busy life, busy world. Uh, welcome back to the Tuesday night uh, Bible study, and check this out, everybody. We begin a brand new study tonight. It's called Not Chapter 8. Yay! <laughs> so welcome back to Romans. Uh, we, we've kind of turned a corner. Uh, in our study of Romans uh, tonight, you know, you might remember we had this uh, this content, uh, sort of a summary of the book of Romans. And now that we finished chapter eight, that sanctification section tonight, we're moving into a whole nother part, aren't we? We're moving into this area that's called sovereignty. We'll talk about exactly what that means. That's not a word we use a lot, sovereignty or to be sovereign. Uh, so we'll really try and uh, unpack that and, and understand what it means that God is sovereign, right? We'll, we'll, we'll have a good discussion about that. So anyway, we've turned a corner. We're moving in a new direction. It is remarkable, I think, uh, how much different chapter 9 is from all the stuff we've seen before. Uh, in fact, if I didn't know better, I would say it's like two separate books that somehow got mashed together, you know. Uh, it's just, it, they're just so different. But again, our Mr. Logical St. Paul, this is the way he rolls. We're learning this at Romans, aren't we? He is so linear. I, uh, he, if he were preaching today, he would have an outline that he would hand out in worship is all I'm saying. Right? That's the way his mind works. You know, maybe that's why I love Romans so much. I don't know. But, you know, he's closed a chapter. That's really what's happened. He's, he's closed this section on sanctification. It's like he said, okay, we've, we've talked about how we're all broken, about how God fixes us. We've talked about what it means now to walk in this new relationship of being fixed. The word he uses, justified, right, by God. Now what? Now we're going to talk about God's sovereignty. We're going to talk about how God works to accomplish his plan and his purpose in our world today. So he's like closed one chapter and he's opened up another chapter. So I think you're going to hear a, a different tone. You're going to hear a sort of a different sort of style and structure as he as he works in these three chapters here. Chapters 9, 10 and 11, the section on sovereignty. So tonight we get to start a new sort of chapter, a new section in the book of Romans. So let's pray uh, that God would give us all that we need to be filled and strengthened by this amazing word. Well, dear Lord, Heavenly Father, God, we praise and thank you for another Tuesday. Woohoo! Uh, God, we love Tuesdays uh, because we can be together in the word. Uh, we love Tuesdays because we know that you're going to speak to us through this book of Romans, that we're going to hear your voice and your Holy Spirit is going to work through that voice to come into our hearts, our minds, and to give us what we need to understand who you are and what it means for us to love and follow you and understand how we can apply all this to our lives. So thank you, God, for, for Tuesday. Thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for the friends um, that have gathered. Uh, it is just a joy for me to see how every night uh, there's more yip-yap, I mean chit-chat, I mean nice talking going on uh, as we get to just be more than just strangers, but brothers and sisters gathering around the Word of God. So thank you for what you're doing here in our midst through your Word, and pray that you continue that tonight as we open ourselves to learn and grow and be filled by you. In Jesus' name we pray and ask it all. Amen. 
All right, my friends, uh, sovereignty. That's the word we have to talk about a little bit, right? So I looked it up in my theological dictionary, and here's the official definition of sovereignty. The sovereignty of God in Christianity can be defined primarily as the right of God to exercise his ruling power over his creation, and secondarily, but not necessarily, as the exercise of this right. The way God exercises his ruling power is subject to divergencies, notably related to the concept of God's self-imposed limitations. The relationship between free will and the sovereignty of God has been relevant, notably in the Calvinist-Armenian debate and the philosophical theodicy. Well, there you have it. That just does it, right? Don't you feel better now? Woo! Pack up and go on home. Here's the, the Dan version of sovereignty. God's absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. There you go. Isn't that a little easier to understand? See, this is the mind of Dan, right? Doesn't get too complicated. <laughs> so sovereignty, all this stuff above is right. And what it's really just saying is, hey, everybody, God is God. And because he's God, he can do whatever God wants to do. And he can do it any way that God pleases to do it. And however he chooses to do it, it's going to be right and it's going to be good. And he's going to work it out according to his own plan and his own good pleasure. All right. And that's why the title of this lesson today is Let God Be God. That's what I think St. Paul is going to say in these three chapters. As he's talking about God's sovereignty, he's just going to say, just relax, people. Chill out a little bit. I mean, the questions are good and everything, but there comes a point in time where you've got to just let God be God because he is sovereign, you're not, uh, right? And that's really the theme of these three chapters. You know, that we're just going to let God be God. And along the way, uh, you know, we're going to use the, St. Paul uses the example of Israel a lot in these three chapters. And along the way, we're going to see that it's really not about Israel. I'm, I'm going to work really hard tonight to impress that on us as we learn and talk about these chapters. That on the surface, we're talking about Israel. But underneath that, what matters most, these three chapters are really much more about the character and the nature of God. We're going to learn about who God is about how God operates, about what God does, about how God accomplishes things. We're going to learn about his character through the example we have of Israel and a lot of Old Testament examples that he's going to use for us. All right? So that's kind of the plan. Uh, but first, let's think about this dramatic change in moods. Are you just shocked by this? How we have moved from the end of chapter 8, right? At the end of chapter 8, the very last verse of chapter 8 is this beautiful verse. Did we not just love this when we studied and, uh, and talked about this? I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, he is smoking on top of the mountain, isn't he? He is high as a kite. He is happy and uh they couldn't be in a better mood. And now look at the very next verse. Chapter 9, verse 1. 
He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Can you see the dramatic change in just one verse? Right? Something's happened. Something has changed him in his writing as he's presenting this book of Romans. It's, it's crazy that the dramatic shift in the mood change here. And do you know what I think it is? What happened between 8 and 9? He continues in, in verse 3, and he tells us why. Why the mood shift? Why the great agony and misery? Why the gloom, despair, and agony on me? Oh, why? He said it. I wish I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, for my own race, the people of Israel. He has just laid out that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. And yet, many of his own family, his own race, his own people, his own nationality, the Jewish people of Israel, are separated from God. So we're going to have to wrestle with this. Do you see? We're going to have to wrestle with the end of chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God uh, in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the fact that there are still people who are separated from him. How is that possible? How does that happen? Whatever it is, it caused Paul such grief, great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart that there are those who refuse to hear the good news that he's shared in those first eight chapters, right? So Paul's heart is breaking. Uh, in this verse, can't you hear? He can't hold back the tears because the Israelites had rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And it just breaks his heart. So don't miss the depths of his anguish for the loss of, uh, for the, the Jewish faith and their rejection of Christ. Don't miss, what was he willing to do for them? We just read it. Can you imagine saying, I'd be willing to go to hell if it would get you into heaven? That's what St. Paul is saying. He said it. I'm willing, I wish I could be cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. He's saying, if I could, if there was some way, I myself would give up my salvation so that they might know and love Jesus and be saved. That's the depths of where he has gotten in his grief for the loss of the Israel's, Israel's faith in Christ, in God himself. Because he knows that by rejecting the Messiah, they are rejecting God the Father as well. Right? So that's the big mood change. That's what happened between chapters 8, 9, and 10. So now he's going to wrestle with that anguish. He's going to wrestle with that grief and that apparent contradiction. So he says, I wish I myself were cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. He says in, in chapter 9, in chapter 10, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer is for the Israelites that they might be saved. And in chapter 11, he says, I ask, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. So do you see each of these three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11, begin with this anguish. 
this this fact that they um that they have been cut off they have cut themselves off from the grace and the love of god so this is where we're going to go as we're talking about sovereignty in these three chapters all right so this is indeed a deeply debated section of scripture by the way in the christian church there's just a lot of controversy scholars better minds than mine have studied and debated this for years and there is a big disagreement to this day about Israel's place in history, right? You can pick up books today, you know, <coughs> excuse me, that talk about how the things that are going on in Israel right now, right, are predicted in the Bible. And it's setting up the end times, right, that Israel has an important place. The nation of Israel still has an important place in God's laying out his plans for the future. There are those who say that is true, and then there are others who say that the nation of Israel has absolutely nothing to do anymore with God's plans for the times in which we live, these end times, looking forward to the time when Christ returns. And, and these three chapters have been used in that debate on both sides. Right. So I'm saying this is a hotly debated section of Scripture. But here's what I want us to do. Right? Looking at this from a, from a Lutheran perspective, this is how our tribe understands these three verses of or these three chapters of Scripture and how I agree. I understand it as well. I want us to look not so much about what they tell us about the nation of Israel, but more so about what they tell us about the nature of God. Right. So here's an important statement. I believe that the central theme of these three chapters is really about how God's plans for the Jews illustrates or demonstrates his character for us today. All right, am I making sense, y'all? Right? So I don't want to get lost in the forest, you know, get lost in this debate about Israel today, Israel yesterday, the nation of Israel's place in God's plan of working things out towards the end times. Because I think that misses the point. All right, you follow me? That misses the point. The point of this is we're going to learn something amazing about God and how he works in our world. The example that St. Paul uses here in these chapters is Israel, but we could apply a whole bunch of things to how God lives, works, and moves, and has his way. That's the point of these chapters, to learn a little bit about God's character and how he is still active and alive in our world today, moving us towards his plans and future. Okay? So I hope that you're not going to want to get into a big old debate about the nation of Israel with me, because that's not what I think St. Paul would want us to do. That was not the point. All right? Go ahead, Dennis. I have a question. So why is Israel still here? Why are the children of Israel still here? Of any, there aren't any Romans around. There aren't any uh, Assyrians or Sure. Right. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that question. I just know that they are. <laughs> and that they are loved by God just like everybody else. You know? Um, all right. So let's look then again. I'm trying to prove my point that it's not about Israel. Right? So here's what you could say. You could say chapter 9. And this is on your sheets, by the way. Right? Chapter 9 is about Israel's past. Chapter 10 is about Israel's present. 
and chapter 11 is about Israel's future. I believe that's true. But underneath that is this. Chapter 9 is about the sovereignty of God. Why did he choose Israel in the first place? So as we look at Israel's past, it's really not about Israel. It's about God's sovereignty and how he works and asking the question, why did he choose him in the first place back then? Then chapter 10 is about the fairness of God. It's not just about Israel's present, present times, but it's about all of us are given the opportunity to be saved, not just Israel. And chapter 11 is about the faithfulness of God. It's not just about Israel's future, but it's about God's promise that is everlasting for Israel and everyone else who believes in is part of the new Israel. All right? So do you see, it's really not about the nation of Israel. We Lutherans just don't go down that path about the whole nation of Israel as a, a, a foretaste or God's using that uh, to bring in the end times, to usher in the end times. We believe that when Jesus Christ came and the new covenant was ushered in, that the old covenant ceased to exist. And the old nation of Israel became irrelevant, and the new nation of Israel became relevant. And do you know what the new nation of Israel is? The church. That's us. This is going to get all a lot more clear as we start working through this today, okay? So if you're thinking to yourself right now, oh my gosh, I want to go back to Romans 8, right? <laughs> Hang on, hold on, right? I think it's going to get clearer as we begin to talk through this. But for now, right, we think that the old nation of Israel had a very important, a very crucial, and a very uh, essential role in God's plan. But that role was completed and fulfilled the moment Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the grave. Now there is a new Israel, the church, which God works through still today to accomplish his plan and his purpose. All right, so again, that'll get more clear. My point is, we're not going to get lost in a, in a, a, a debate about end times. Instead, we're going to just live in the character and nature of God that we're going to learn together in these three chapters. You all okay with that? All right. So let's get into our thing then. Let's start talking about Romans chapter 9. And we want to ask this question, how the Jews were chosen? Uh, how were the Jews chosen by God? Uh, what, was, what is it about them that made them God's chosen people? Why did God choose them? My friend Harry Went, the guy who wrote Crossways and Divine Drama, one of his chapters is called How Odd of God to Choose the Jews. You know, just always stuck in my head. You know, what is it about them? Why did God choose them? And we're going to see that there are these eight special privileges that the Jews were given. This is St. Paul who said these words, reading right straight from St. Paul's letter in chapter 9. Right? He said, first of all, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Right? How were they God's chosen people? All the people of all the nations in the world, it was, it was the Jews, the nation of Israel, that was chosen by God and adopted as his sons. God said, the Jews are going to be my people. They're going to be different than all of the other races I've created. 
So that's one way that they were God's, quote, chosen people. What does it mean that they were the chosen people? They were adopted. Other nations were not adopted in this way. This was a unique thing that God did for the nation of Israel, uh, adopted. They were adopted into sonship. Second, theirs is the divine glory. That's again, St. Paul said that in verse 4. What is the divine glory? Right. This is St. Paul's word for the back in the Old Testament times when the children of Israel were fleeing from Egypt and they wandered in the wilderness. Remember, as they were running away from Pharaoh, they were led in the daytime by a, a pillar of, of, of cloud in the day at night by a pillar of fire at night. And it wasn't just like a, it wasn't just like a cool tornado that just kind of went in front of them and they followed it. But it, who was in the tornado? Who was in the cloud? It was the presence of God himself. Right? That's the thing about, you all know in the, in the, in the Old Testament, the cloud, when the cloud would appear, the, the Shekinah, the presence of God would be in the cloud. That was what made the cloud. It was the presence of God himself. That same cloud is a cloud when Jesus was transfigured on the mount, right? What shows up? This cloud. And who shows up out of the cloud? The voice of God says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Right? That, the cloud. That's the, that's the divine glory. It's the cloud, if you were following in the Old Testament, when they, would, when they would settle in their wilderness wanderings and they would pitch the tabernacle tent. The cloud presence, the divine glory of God would fill the, the, the tabernacle. It's the same presence of God that when they built the temple in Jerusalem, the, the presence of God was there in the Holy of Holies. That's the divine glory. So why are they the chosen people of God? Because there, said St. Paul, they have the divine glory. What they have is the presence of God that doesn't live up in a cloud in space on a planet somewhere, but lives where? With them, in the midst of them who is guiding and leading and filling their temple, his presence, his real presence is there, right? They have the divine glory. No other nation has the divine glory, but the nation of Israel does. That's why they're the chosen ones, all right? God put his real presence with them, the divine glory. I thought I could go like for an hour on what that means for us today. Is God's real presence with the new Israel? Is God's real presence with the new Israel today? Come on, good Lutheran scholars. What do we call holy, the Holy Communion? When, when, when we say that in, with, and under the, the bread and wine is the very body and blood of Jesus Christ, what do we call that? Real presence. Because he is really present with us in our tabernacle. We get to touch him. We get to taste. We get to see that he is really present with us still today. We could go off on that one, right? But let's not. Just let's have a little, a little taste of the good news. The divine glory was theirs. And that's why they were the chosen ones. All right, next. How were the Jews God's chosen? Theirs is the covenant, said St. Paul in verse 4. He said the covenants are theirs. Now, what does that mean? The covenants were the promises and the agreements that God made with Ab with Adam, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Moses, with David, with the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai, right? These, you know what you know what the word covenant means. A covenant it means promise. It's the same word as testament. 
Testament, covenant, promise, really all mean the same thing. I've said this for years. I wish we would call the Bible, instead of talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament, I wish we would call it the Old Promise and the New Promise. Because that just makes so much more sense to us in our ears. Who knows what a testament is anymore, right? Uh, I have testaments, these little mints that you eat, right? But that, see, it's a promise. So what they had, what St. Paul is saying, why are they the chosen one? They had the promises of God. Can you think of some of the great covenants? Like how about the covenant to, Abraham, uh, to Adam and Eve that a descendant of theirs who would be born of the woman would show up who would who even though Satan would 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 wound his heel he would crush his head. How about the covenant to Abraham? Now I'm going to make you a great nation, and one of your descendants will be a blessing to all nations. How about the covenant to David that a descendant of yours will sit on the throne and reign forever? See, these are these beautiful covenant promises that God has given to the people uh, to help them along on their journey. These were all the things that God committed himself to do for the Jews. Why were they God's chosen people? Because they had the covenants. Next, how are they God's chosen? Theirs is the law. He said a great gift to them was the giving, the receiving of the law. 9 verse 4. They were given the law, the Torah, the Ten Commandments. This wasn't given to any other nation. This was given to the nation of Israel because they were God's chosen ones. Are you seeing how Paul is laying all this out? This is why they're the chosen ones. They were given the gift of the law. God's word was given to the world through the nation of Israel, the Jews. The law of God, the Ten Commandments that we still cherish and love to this very day, right? Was given first to whom? The nation of Israel, the Jewish people. That's why they were the chosen. One of the reasons. Another, why are they God's chosen? Because theirs is the temple worship, said St. Paul. This is 9 verse 4 again. What does it mean that theirs was the temple worship? Again, in just so unique to the nation of Israel and the Jews was how that they worshipped. They worshipped one God, not many gods. And their worship was a give and take. They gave and God gave and God gave. And a part of that worship was this amazing sacrificial system right, that, that was part of it. It was laid out and designed by God. They didn't invent this whole idea of, you know, sacrificing a lamb on the altar and then taking the blood of that lamb and mixing it with some water and then sprinkling it on the people. That wasn't something that they just made up. That was given to them by God. And the reason they did that was it would be a, a, a picture of what was going to come. It was a foretaste. It was a prophecy. It was a type of the anti-type who would come, the Lamb of God, who would shed blood that would be shared in Holy Communion, that would give grace and forgiveness to everyone. Right. So the sacrificial system was this gift that was given to the Israelites that would help them understand forgiveness and point them to the one who would come. Isn't that amazing? Right? This gift is given to them because they are the chosen ones. And not only that, but the temple worship includes the offerings that they were to give. You know, all of the festivals and all of the, the um, uh, ceremonies that they celebrated, almost all of them included some sort of offering because it was this idea 
that the giver has given us so much and we give back. And, and the, here's what made this different because their offerings and sacrifices in all different religions at that time. But what made this different, right, was that you did it not to get something, to earn favor. Right? Every other religion that offered a sacrifice or gave a gift, it was about getting something back, earning the favor of the gods. Not with this new system. Jesus, uh, God gives this system that says the offering is, is done as a way of saying thank you. It's done as a way of response to what has first been given. Do you see? Totally different. And this is the gift, this temple worship, the, the worship and the sacrificial system and the joyful giving of offerings. That was why, again, they were part called the chosen people. All right. Next, there are chosen people because St. Paul said, theirs are the promises. There are so many promises made in the Old Testament. Isn't it amazing? The, the promises that we just love and cherish that come to us from the Old Testament. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I know my Redeemer lives and at the end he will stand upon the earth. Right? Beautiful promises of God that we cling to and hold to from the Old Testament. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Just such crazy, amazing, beautiful, hopeful promises that were given to God's people because they were these chosen ones. So I love it. How else were the, God, the Jews God's chosen? There's, St. Paul said, are the patriarchs. Patriarchs are the great leaders of the nation of Israel. So that's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David. Uh, these men chosen by God, uh, picked by God, used by God, to be great leaders in moving them forward and accomplishing God's plan of bringing the Messiah into the world. So he says to them, what a great gift that you've been given these leaders, these patriarchs that God has given you to lead. How were the Jews God's chosen? Here's the best one of all. Theirs is the ancestry of Christ, St. Paul said. In 9.5, he said, he concludes this whole section of why they're the chosen people with this. And from them, is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Right? Is this the best? What's the greatest reason that they're the chosen ones? Because they're the privilege of being the race that the Messiah would come from. You do know this, right? That Jesus was Jewish? That, that he doesn't look like the guy unchosen? Really? You know, he doesn't, he's not American like that, you know, uh, like most of the pictures we see, he's Jewish. He was Jewish from every fiber of his being. He was Jewish. The Savior of the world, Jesus, came from the nation of Israel, the Jewish nation. And for this reason, as well as the other seven we looked at before it, they are God's chosen nation. All right. All right, that was a quick run-through of those eight things. And I gave you a lot of space to write all that down. <laughs> Not so much, did I? Use the back page. Good job. All right, thoughts or questions about some of that before we can reflect on it some? Go ahead. He would have, yeah. Right.
I might have disagree with that a little bit. You know, there's that Isaiah passage, 52, that says there is nothing attract, nothing that would attract us to him. There's nothing that would, he, he, was, he was not like Solomon, who was tall and handsome and charming and beautiful, right? You know, he was, uh, no. I don't know. That's a, that's a good thing to debate. My guess is, my guess is that he was just as average as average could be. There was nothing that attracted us to him about his looks. That it, it that just wasn't it. His, it that. Mm. Yeah. See, this is it. See, we have we have Jesus up on this. She asked, "Doesn't he have an aura? Did he walk around glowing?" didn't you know these have this picture of jesus in our minds don't we of that he is just somehow god which he is but you remember in philippians says he put all that aside he humbled himself making himself nothing yeah just he he was jewish through and through no doubt about it and i don't think anything special about his look or his way it was his teaching and his giving go ahead Yeah. Or, or if you close your eyes and think of Jesus, I bet you a hundred dollars he looks American. <laughs> that kind of that one too. That's a famous picture, Arlo. Yes. Right. Oh, we don't. What about the Shroud of Turin? All right, I'm just kidding, everybody. Come on. <laughs> You're right. We don't. We. Do you know? You ready for this one? This might shock you a little bit. You know, you can look at the tombs of people who died two thousand years ago in Israel. So the Jewish men and women who were buried in these tombs. You know, you can see the bones a little bit, uh, and you, you know how tall the average man was two thousand years ago. Five foot two. Jesus was probably five foot two. Eyes of blue. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> right, but that's not our picture of Jesus, a five foot two Jewish guy. That's not what we think of when we think of Jesus, you know, but he was Jewish as Jewish can be, right? Yes. Heaven is for real. Huh, interesting. I hate to burst your bubble. That's not what Jesus looks like. Because he's Jewish. That guy does not look Jewish. I know what Jewish people look like, and it's not that. That's like Hollywood Jesus. 
Yeah, yeah. This is the, the I'm glad we're having this discussion because we we sort of romanticize Jesus. We sort of artists picture Jesus, but he is Jewish as can be. That's the point. He was every bit as human as you and I. Just he was. All right. All right, I got to fly. This is good. So I guess the next question then is why? Why did God choose the Jews? Why them? Why were they giving all these amazing things? Do you ever wonder why didn't God just spread it out among a whole bunch of other nations? I mean, if he wanted everybody to know about him, if he wanted them all to have the, the knowledge, then why didn't he give the promises? And why didn't he give the law? And why didn't he give all of the blessings to everybody? Why the Jews? Why did God choose to do all of them for them? So that he could play favorites? Is that why? Because the Jewish people, he loves more than non-Jewish people? Is that it? Or maybe so that they could brag about their position? Is that why he chose them? So that they could say, ah, look at who we are. Look at what how we're the favorite child. Right? Is that it? No, neither of those. Genesis 12 is, I think, got a good answer to this. God's talking to Abraham in this great covenant promise he makes with Abraham. And he says to him, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And now listen to this. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Now there's the answer. Why did God do all these amazing things to the nation of Israel? Because they were to share those things with the world. That was God's plan. They would be the conduit. Galatians, St. Paul said it this way. And I love this. He says, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. Isn't that just, gosh, that verse drips with meaning. That already, when God was talking to Abraham and said, all nations will be blessed through you, God knew that that the gospel, the good news, that grace and forgiveness, that the sacrifice of Christ would be to all nations, not just the Jewish nation, but it was through the Jewish nation that the Messiah and the blessing would come. You get it? And, and it's great. The scripture foresaw this. Uh, all nations will be blessed through you was a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just for the Jews, but for all. Ooh, that's good stuff. Except that's the second covenant, because in the first covenant, they were killing the people, all the people in, in, in uh, Israel. They were, you know, when they came in, they said, get rid of them all, because of all the, all the uh, foreign gods and such. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and so they, they did, they were, they were. Uh, all right, you're a bit ahead of me. Hold that thought. Okay. You're right. So I'm going to answer, the, I'm just, I want to say exactly what you just are saying but then everybody will be able to see and hear it. All right? So, the point. Why did God do all these things? So that Israel could be a blessing to the whole rest of the world. All right? However, as Dennis was just pointing out, there's an oops. Right? You know what the oops is going to be? The problem is they failed miserably at this task. Instead of sharing it, they held on to it and kept it to themselves. 
instead of seeing the great blessing and gift that they've been given to share it with all nations, they began to see all nations as their enemies and unworthy of the blessings that they themselves had been given. And the blessing turned into a birthright. It turned into a gift that God gave them that they were to have and not share or give to anybody else. Do you see how this just got so upside down, flipped around? Terribly so. So God had to take the privilege away from the Jews and give it to the church so that it could be shared. And that's this whole idea of St. Paul is saying, the scripture foreknew that through Abraham would come this blessing to all nations in the new Israel, the new church would be given and shared with all. So you get it? There was an oops. And so it had to get adjusted again when Jesus shows up. Go ahead. Did God know then that at some point the Jews would deny that Christ was the Son of God? So she asked, did God know then, when he's talking to Abraham, that the Jews would deny God and turn away from him? Yes, he did. Because he knows everything, doesn't he? So he knew. So then what are you going to say next? Well, then why did he do it? Yeah, they were so chosen. They yeah. All the advantages. Sure. Couldn't he have done it a different way? Could he have chosen a different nation? Maybe that would have worked better. What if he chose the Babylonians instead of the Israelites? You think that would turn down any better? What if he chose the Assyrians instead of the Israelites? Think that would turn down any better? You see, the point is, it's not about the people. And that's what we're going to learn in all of this. It's not about the nation of Israel. It's so much more about the nature and character of God who takes broken, messed up things, broken, messed up people, and still uses them to get right where he wanted to be. This is what he did. He knew they would mess up, but he used their mess up to actually bring about the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Let that sink in your mind a little bit. Not only did he know that they were going to reject him, they, he knew he, that they were going to crucify him. But God wove that into the whole plan of salvation, didn't he? Yeah, no, it's mind-boggling. This is, see, now, sweet. I love how God's working in our class. This is sovereignty. This is exactly what we're talking about here in these three chapters. God is sovereign. And God knows best. And he has the right to do it his way. Huh? So we might say, God, that was how odd of you to choose the Jews. And God's like, this is all going to work out. Just trust me. <laughs> right? That's sovereignty. That's what St. Paul is trying to argue here. And we're learning as we're talking about all of this. God gets the whole picture. We don't. All right? Oh, I didn't get there yet. If you're looking to put out one number three, I'm still not there. No, number one. Number one, yeah. Point. Yeah, here we are. Right now, on what basis did God choose Israel? That's where I'm going next. Right? So, why Israel? Why did he choose them? What was the reasons that he chose them? St. Paul is going to answer this in 9.6. He says, it's not as though God's word had failed, right, when the Jews turned their back on him. It's not as if God failed, 
For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Right? So do you see what he's saying here? He's saying salvation is based on God's grace, not our race. This is what he's saying. Even those who are descended from Israel are not the true new Israel. Because it's not about your race that makes you right with God. It's not about your race that gets you saved. It's about grace that gets you saved. Right? So why did God choose them? Because it's grace, not race. He didn't choose them because they were Jewish. He chose them because it's grace. Or as I like to say, it's not about biology. It's about grace. Salvation has nothing to do with biology. It's about grace. St. Paul said earlier in chapter 2 of Romans, A man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. So what makes someone right in God's eyes today, what makes someone part of the nation of Israel today, isn't biology, it isn't heredity, it isn't what race you are, it's what you believe. Right? Do you see? It's grace, not race. And that's the reason that God chose them and still chooses today. Right? So, again, and by the way, I messed this, my, my formatting when I printed got messed up on the bottom of your sheet here. Here's what it should look like. Right? There's, there's two groups of people I wanted to show on the bottom of your page. There's the, the racial Israel, right? The genetic nation of Israel. And that group of people is composed of unbelieving Jews and believing Jews. You get it? They're just Jewish by birth. That's the racial Israel. St. Paul is going to talk about a new Israel called the real Israel, and it's composed of believing Jews and, guess what, believing non-Jews, Gentiles. So do you see the difference between the two? One is based on race. The other side, the right side, is based on grace, believing, receiving the gift of God. So, why did God choose the Jews? Because they, were, because they were Jewish? Because they were Israelites? Because they were born in the right family? Mm -mm. It's grace, not race. And aren't you glad it's still that way? Right? Because how many of you here are Jewish? Some. Some have some Jewish roots. So you guys would be saved. The rest of us would be in big trouble. But it's not about that, is it? Go ahead. Well, if you want to say we're all part of the new Israel, yes. In that sense, we're all part of the new Jewish nation. Yes, that's true. But not bio biologically. No. But we're the new Israel. We're all part of the family of God, this Jewish nation, the new Jewish nation, right? Which isn't biological, it's all grace. You got it. All right. Salvation is based on grace, not race. What does this mean? Let's get clear on this. 
What saves you is your faith and not your family or upbringing. Right? Have you ever heard someone say, I'm a Christian, my mom was a Christian, and my grandpa was a pastor, so I'm a Christian. You know, that means nothing, right? That has nothing to do with your salvation, what your parents believed or what, you know, that, that's not what does it. Uh, you don't inherit salvation. <laughs> you don't. It doesn't come through the genes. It's a grace. It's a gift of God. So every generation must come to know Jesus on its own. You can't pass on faith biologically, can you? It's something that each person needs to receive from God on his or her own basis. Grace, not race. All right, we're cool with that? All right, second reason. Next page, please, of your study guide. On what basis did God choose Israel? Here's another argument St. Paul makes. He says in verses 8 through 9, says, in other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So St. Paul now, to get us to understand sovereignty of God, he chooses and works how he will, points all the way back to the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael. He's going to go all the way back to the children. And so what we're going to learn from this, and you can write this on your sheet, salvation is based on God's promise, not our preference. All right, now you're going to have to try and follow my logic on this one a little bit. I might have stretched, I don't know, right? But if you remember back in Genesis 21, the story. Abraham's first son was Ishmael through Hagar. Why was Ishmael born with Abram's handmaiden, Hagar, not his wife, Sarah? Let's remember back. God made a promise to Abraham that through you, from you, is going to come a great nation. Remember the great covenant? And, and, And one of those down the line is going to be a blessing to all nations. Abraham knew this. He knew he was going to be the father of a great nation. There was one problem. He was like 90 years old and hadn't had any children yet. He and Sarah were not having any children. So what did Abraham do? Being the good, trusting, faithful servant that he was, (laughs) he took matters into his own hands, didn't he? God's not giving me a son through Sarah, so I'll have a son in another way through Hagar. And he does. And Ishmael is born, right? Then, 13 years later, after Ishmael is born, comes the miracle child. Abraham is now 100, Sarah is 90, and who is born? Isaac. Isaac is the child of the promise. Isaac is the one whom God said the covenant will run through, right? But see, do you see what happened here? Abraham went with his own preference instead of trusting in God's promise. Do you see where I'm going with this now? Right? So it's like this. It's like God said, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And Abraham said, oh, Ishmael? And God said, no, that may be your preference. That may be your plan. That may be your will. That may be the way you thought it was going to happen. But no, it's not, he's not the child of the promise. 
that the promise was through Isaac, right? So again, my whole thought in this, my whole thinking in this is that why did God choose the Jews? It was because of the promise, not because of a preference. You know, not because that they had done things or that they had earned things or it is because of that. And then I'm reading on. He explains this even further. Uh, or did I? Oops, no, I'm not yet. I'm still back to that second one. Sorry. So salvation comes because of the promise of God, not on the preference of the people. All right, all good with that? Now we can move on to the third one. And again, St. Paul says in verses 10 to 13, not only that, don't you love St. Paul? He's doing it again. He's building a case. This is what he does, isn't it? He like gives you an example, and then he gives you another example, then he gives you another example. He's just talked about uh, Ishmael and Isaac, and now he says, not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born and had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Again, remember the story. They were talking about Jacob and Esau, right? The twins that were in her womb. And who was born first? Esau, then Jacob. But whom did God choose to give the blessing? Who did God choose to run the covenant through? Jacob. That's not the way it was supposed to work. The firstborn gets the blessing. The firstborn is the one who God chooses to work. Not this case. In fact, he even tells her before they were even born that Jacob is going to be the child of promise, not Esau. Before he were, they were even born. Before they had a chance to even show any character or do anything good or anything deserving, God already chose. Remember, this is about sovereignty. God picks and chooses, not according to our preference, not according to our will, but his will. So, if you're filling in blanks, salvation is based on God's providence, not our performance. All right, now I think I saw some hands. I just wanted to get that out before I answer, asked. Got a question here, because this was the case, and uh, Rebecca pulled the switch, She was just doing what everybody, what, what, what God told her. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so there's a deception there, but there wasn't deception. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. See, this. the point in all this is God uses messed up people to accomplish his plan and purpose. It's not about the people's performance. It's not about their abilities. It's not about anything to do with them. It's about God. He is sovereign. He chooses. It's his providence that accomplishes all of this stuff. So traditionally, the oldest gets the blessing, but God picked Jacob. Not because he was better. He hadn't even been born yet. Right? So it wasn't about performance. God chose him before he was born, I think, on purpose, to show he saves not based on good works or performance. God does this sometimes. He picks the least likely and uses them to do something awesome so that all of us will go, oh, in God's hands, even I have a chance. 
right? He picks the least likely, the one who shouldn't have gotten the blessing, the one who didn't deserve the blessing, and gives him the blessing so that you and I can go, huh, even I have a chance of getting some blessings from God. He does this on purpose. He does this to show his grace, to show his plan, to show his sovereignty. God made the choice simply in the basis of his own providence. All right? So why did God choose? Because of their performance, because they would be a better nation than others? <laughs> That's not it at all. It's God's sovereignty, his providence. And then there is this really challenging verse that I thought we should ponder a little bit. Chapter 9, he's talking about Jacob and Esau and this whole thing, providence over performance. And then verse 13, it says, Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What's up with that? I have a big, I have a big huh with that one. I didn't think God hated anybody. Right? So what's with this verse? Hmm. Many have used this verse to say God chooses to save some and to damn others. We have a, a, a title for that kind of thought. It's called double predestination. That God predestines some to be saved whom he loves, and he predestines some to be damned whom he hates. You all know that's not biblical, right? It doesn't even sound good, does it? It doesn't sound like the God we've gotten to know together in our study through the scriptures, does it? Right? Not double predestination. So then how do we understand? Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Remember this, an important principle of interpretation. Context, context, context. You always have to look at the verse in the context of the whole, not just pull one verse out of context, right? So if you look at the verse, right, this quote is from Malachi, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Now, Malachi was written about 1,500 years after Jacob and Esau had already died. Malachi was one of the last books written in the Old Testament, right? So it's 1,500 years after they died. And by the time of Malachi, right, the nation of Jacob was Jacob's descendants. That nation became Israel. And the descendants of Esau became Edom or the Edomites. So really, by the 1,500 years later, when you're talking about Jacob and Esau, you weren't talking about the people, you were talking about the nations. And that's proven, right? Uh, if you look at Malachi, you want to just open your Bible and see that? When's the last time you were in Malachi? You know it's really easy to find because it's right in front of Matthew. Right? You know where Matthew is. We're there all the time. It's the last book in the Old Testament, right? So just find Malachi right before Matthew in your Bible. So Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, right? It says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated. See, this is what St. Paul quotes. And then it goes on, though. See, this is what St. Paul doesn't quote the rest of the story. He says, in, uh, Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And 
I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. So can you tell he's talking about a nation here, the mountains of the nation? It's, it's not about a person. It's about the nations. So really what's going on here then is Malachi is condemning the Edomites for their wickedness. That's what he's doing here in, this, in, his, in, the, in the context of Malachi. So when St. Paul uses that, he's using that as an example of a nation who has gone bad and how the roots of that already started in God's sovereignty in the womb when he says about the nature and character of Jacob and Esau. You get it? So it's not about double predestination. It's not about God loves some people and hates others. That's not it at all. It's about God's judgment on evil and how that evil can wreck and ruin a nation. All right? Yes, sir. Yeah. Right. Jacob wasn't sure that was going to be the case either, was he? But Esau was gracious and kind and good, welcomed him back. Yep. I agree. All right, so it's not so difficult when you look at the context. Right? Again, um, I, I thought that would be a good little sidestep because it's good for us to remember that we need to always see things in context, not pull out a verse, or you get double predestination. All right, next, number four. On what basis did God choose Israel? We've already seen three, right? Now let's look at the fourth. St. Paul goes on to say, What then shall we say? He's building his case. Is God unjust? Not at all, he says. For he says to Moses, now we're talking about Moses, another example. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Why did God choose Israel? Because salvation is based on God's mercy, not our merit. And so he uses the example of Moses and Pharaoh to get us to understand that God is sovereign and will work according to his plan and his way. For example, consider Moses. You all know that Moses was a murderer, right? Before, uh, you know, before he went out and left Egypt, before he went out and met God in the burning bush, you know, before, what did Moses do when he saw an Egyptian abusing an Israelite? He killed him with his bare hands. Moses was a murderer. Why did God choose Moses? <laughs> Certainly there was someone better. Well, God uses him to show that it's mercy, it's grace, that it's mercy, not merit, why God chooses, why God calls some and not others. Consider Pharaoh. Reading on the rest here from St. Paul, verses 17 to 18, he says about Pharaoh, God says, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy in whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Pharaoh, in God's hand, was a tool, wasn't he? He was, he was a person that God used to accomplish his plan and purpose 
of setting the Egyptians free, which eventually led to the entry into Israel, which eventually led to Jesus being crucified, which eventually led to the resurrection, which eventually led to the fulfillment of God's plan. And he used who to do it? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Right? Pharaoh. Yeah. It is hard to understand. That whole hardening of the Pharaoh's heart thing has always been a difficult one. But the point here that St. Paul makes is that God did that for a reason. Do you see the reason there? So that his power might be displayed. So that the whole world would see Pharaoh's not as bad as we thought. You know, there's a badder God. <laughs> there's a bigger, more stronger God. And he can conquer even Pharaoh. Yeah. Hand. Sure. Yeah, it's not as if God forced Pharaoh to do those things. He was already inclined very much so to do those things. But the, the whole point is God hardens sometimes to accomplish his will, and he can do that because he is sovereign. God knows. He's got this. We don't. Right? So I love how St. Paul is saying that's really it's mercy, not merit. God will work through Moses, a murderer. God will work through Pharaoh. God will work through whoever, whatever he wants in order to accomplish his plan and his purpose. All right? So if all that's true, all these things we've just looked at, right? If all of that's true, then how can we be accountable for anything? Paul anticipates this question in these next verses. Like He's like saying, I know what you're thinking right now. One of you will say to me, <laughs> do you see him working, St. Paul? One of you is going to say this. I know it. Then why does God still blame us? If he's sovereign, why does he blame us? For who can resist his will? And then it, and in, this is my little antithesis. This isn't the word. If God already has everything planned, then I'm just a pawn and a puppet. Right? This is what this, this, and this argument that St. Paul is anticipating. Right? If God is sovereign, then who can resist his will? If God is sovereign, then what does it matter what I do? Because it's already all planned out anyway. So what's the deal? So then he goes on to say, but who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? You see Paul's argument? Who are we to argue with the sovereign God? Who are we to say your plan stinks? You know, if I were God, I would never have done it that way. Who are we to say, I know a better way than you do, God. But yet we do this all the time. We do it, don't we? Whenever we wrestle with something that's happened in the world and we say, that's not right, that's not fair, that's not good, God, you should have done it differently, boom. This is the argument, right? St. Paul says, who are we? Doesn't the creator have the, 
the right to shape this lump of clay any way he wants. So God has the right, because he's sovereign, to shape our lives, to shape history, to cause all things to work for good. So who am I to question God? Right? That's the point here of the sovereignty of God in chapter 9. It's not the Jews great gifts. It's not that they were better than others. It doesn't make sense why he chose them, why he did things the way he did. But guess what? God is sovereign. And you can already look back and see how he's worked all of that to accomplish his plan and purpose, right? Who are we to question God? Ah. Uh -huh. Your, your daily plates and your good china. <laughs> yeah. God is the creator. He is sovereign. He has the right. <laughs> nice. So you know it was handmade. So the moral of the story. Let's let God be God. And this is how St. Paul concludes this, right? Uh, uh, this Isaiah 55, isn't that a great passage of Scripture? God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So let's just let God be God. You know, let him work in his way. Our knowledge is limited. God is infinite in knowledge. We don't see the total picture, do we? But God does. And he knows how it's all going to work, how it's all going to fit, how it's all going to accomplish his plan and purpose. This is a quote. I wish I knew who wrote this, but I really like it. This bottom quote, you can lose your mind, you can lose your soul denying the sovereignty of God. But you can also lose your mind trying to understand the sovereignty of God. Isn't that just got some good thought there, right? You know, if you deny that God is sovereign, you can reject God out of your life, a danger to your soul. Or if you're just going to try and understand why everything happens the way it does and why God allowed it to happen the way he does, you will go cuckoo. You'll lose your mind, won't you? Right? So that's a, just a, so what's the, what's the moral of the story there? Let God be God. Stop playing God. Stop trying to be God. Just let God be God and offer up that prayer that Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will be done. I don't understand it. I don't get it. But I know you're sovereign and that it's going to work out because you are God. If we could really just believe that, think of the load of worry it would take off of our shoulders. Right? Are you following me? Think of the, the load of, of care that we could give to God if we would just let go and let him do what he's going to do and know that he's going to work it for good. Right? So then Paul concludes with this. In this end of the chapter, he says, What shall we say then? That, that's a, he uses that little phrase as a conclusion of his argument so often. Now that you've heard all this, now that we've talked about all this, now that you've read all of this, now what? What should we say? 
Luther would say, and what does this mean? Same thing, right? What does this mean? What should we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? A righteousness that is by faith? But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not obtained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it was by works, and they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Y'all know what the stumbling stone is that they stumbled over? What was the thing that the Israelites, the stone that they stumbled over? He said it at the end of his chapter 9. See, he quotes Isaiah. See that I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. What did the Jews stumble over? Jesus, the Messiah. And what is it about Jesus the Messiah that it's the stumbling block to them? We've been talking about it all day. That they are not special. That they are not any different than anybody else. But that salvation is for everyone. That Jesus died for everyone. That just was their stumbling block about him, wasn't it? They just couldn't let go of all that we've looked at today about why God chose them and what their role was. And because of that, Jesus became that stumbling block that causes them to reject him and turn away from him. That's chapter 9. We'll look at chapter 10 next time we're together. Thoughts, questions, anybody? Yes. Okay. Mm. Rick, that is a great question. He asked, how does free will relate to God's sovereignty? If God is sovereign and can do all things in his own way and accomplish things that, how does our free will fit into that? Because you have choices to make too, don't you? And, and uh, so, by the way, this is one of the great mysteries, uh, I think, of faith, is the difference between God's perfect will and God's permissive will, right? We could spend a day just talking about that. God's perfect will, sovereign will, is always done, accomplished according to his plan and purpose. His permissive will is he allows things to happen that he wouldn't choose to happen and still works them to bring about the plan he wanted in the end. He permits your free will to make a bad choice but still weaves that bad choice into his plan to bring about a good. So we, the words that we use for that are perfect will versus permissive will. <laughs> but that would be a whole giant discussion, wouldn't it? And it's mind-boggling. This is one of those things, again, you'll go cuckoo if you're trying to understand why God lets some things happen and not others. Why does he step in sometimes and not other times? Just, it's, it's tough. It's not a good answer to that one. If you want to read a good book, read Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will. He gets, just dices that to pieces in that writing of his. Anybody else? All right. Thanks, everybody. Good lesson. We'll see you again next week, if not before.